This is the Muso Mental Health Podcast. I'm really excited to be talking to David Mastrocola today. Dave is the head at the Bourne of Academy for Visual and Performing Arts. He's also the bass player for Ian Prowse in Amsterdam, which is how we know each other. He's been the bass player there for 14 years. And when he's not aboard the good ship Prowse, he is also the bass player in the Bonsai Pirates, which is a local band to Bournemouth. He also won Secondary Teacher of the Year for Dorset in 2016 and was nominated again in 2022 for Online Teacher of the Year at, off the back of the COVID pandemic. How are you doing, Dave? Thanks for the intro, Laura. Uh, yeah, I'm not doing too badly. Um, yeah, thank you for that intro. You seem a little uncomfortable after the intro. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, the awards, um, only because it, um, it makes me want to curl up into a corner and hide. Well, it shouldn't because they're very well deserved. So do you mind telling the listeners a bit more about yourself and how you came to music as a career? Yeah, so I started, I started having piano lessons, I think around the age of eight, but they were very, they, they, I, I never really got into, into music at that age and sort of didn't do a lot of practice. I never really made much progress or anything. And then went to secondary school. And I think this is where it sort of started to kick in a little bit. So I started, um, my music teacher um, was called Paul Shepherd. Um, who's retired now and I think they had a, a random bassoon knocking around the music department um, and the bassoon player at this school um, was leaving and he said oh do you want to learn the bassoon um, so I thought why not um, and I think I started that in year eight so I would have been about 13 or 14 uh, and it, it sort of progressed from there really um, sort of to join the school orchestra after a little bit dead simple music and I picked it up pretty quickly, picked up grade five theory pretty quickly. I think I had that done and dusted by about end of year nine, so after about a year or so. So the theory side of it um, and the performance element of the music, I, I really enjoyed. And the school um, was really big on music. We had a school orchestra, a, a band, we had a jazz band. There were loads of things to get involved in. And it was a really, a really good part. It's about the only thing that I really sort of properly enjoyed at school. Um, Where was that based? Like, that sounds an incredible school. It, it was in Alton. It's called Amory Hill. Uh, so Alton in Hampshire, sort of northeast Hampshire. Um, and, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was brilliant. We used to do three concerts a year, and, and I loved it. But I, I was listening to more and more music. I got into music very, very young through my parents just basically stealing their vinyl and listening to that. So uh, really big on the Beatles and Fleetwood Mac. I know I listened to the Red Album by the Beatles and um, rumours they had. And then I found an old cassette tape of Queen's Greatest Hits 1. And then I started getting CDs for birthdays and Christmases. I mean, they were still like 15, 20 quid when I was getting them. So it would be one CD sort of every six months sort of thing. Um, but I collect an awful lot of um, Queen albums. I was a big fan of Queen as a kid. And I just wanted to be able to play that type of music I wanted to be in a band and it didn't take me very long to work out that bassoon was not going to be the way forward for me in that <laughs> respect no no one no one wants a, a bassoon player in a band um so uh, the school had some bass guitars and some electric guitars and acoustic guitars and I used to borrow them every weekend I used to uh, borrow a bass or, or an electric guitar and a little amp I used to carry it home on a Friday and then bring it back on the Monday morning. And I essentially, what I used to do was I used to watch Top of the Pops, I used to watch Jules Holland, 
and anything else with live music on and I basically just used to watch them and watch what the guitarist did, watched what the bass did and worked out the notes and then would essentially with the vinyl that I'd stolen from my parents I would just work out what the chords were, work out what the notes were and it sort of progressed from there. I remember um, learning Elvis Presley stuff because it's pretty straightforward. And I also remember spending, it must have been about four hours working out the bass line to Sultans of Swing. Um, I remember that vividly because my dad came in a couple of times and just watched because he loved that song. And he just watched me playing that um, again and again. Um, and it's, it, it sort of progressed from there. I got into a band with a, a, some other lads in the in in the school we started gigging so we were gigging by about i think about the age of 14 15 we were gigging um, was that cover stuff or original all, stuff yeah all covers and, and it was all covers and we basically did loads of Jimi hendrix the guitarist in that band uh, was amazing and is still an unbelievable musician his name's daryl kelly um a, a phenomenal guitarist even back then i mean he's even better now um absolutely ridiculous um so we were basically a Jimi hendrix we did a lot of Jimi hendrix stuff we did a lot of 60s 70s rock music and we had a 12 year old drummer um me and then uh, just dabble and another chap on guitar singing and we basically did that and we used to we used to gig and we played at a place called the blues tavern which is long gone i think it's been shut about 20 years now um and we started gigging there and they gave us a sunday night and we would gig and we would play our two hour set. And then once we started getting people going, we started getting better. And they said, all right, now you can have a Friday night. Now you can have a Saturday night and get paid proper. So we were, before we were getting about probably like 20 quid. And I think they used to give us half a lager as well. <laughs> enough for, enough for, certainly enough for the 12 year old at the time. Um, <laughs> more than enough. And, and we, it sort of progressed from there really, um, through, through college. And then I decided not to take a music degree. Um, okay and that that sort of stems from and I look back now with a huge amount of regret about not taking a music degree because looking back I know I could have done it but my music teacher at the time who was absolutely brilliant uh, a, a brilliant music teacher uh, Martin Reed at Alton College he sadly passed away about 10 years ago but uh, absolutely brilliant but he said he, he I remember him saying don't do a music degree you won't get in which I, if I'd known as much as I know now about how universities work, I definitely, definitely would have got in to do a contemporary music uh, course. But I think he was thinking along the lines of my bassoon playing, maybe not get, not dedicated enough to the bassoon um, while I was at college because I was doing so much more band stuff. And I think, yeah, I think that was always, a, I always look back and think, oh, it's a missed opportunity there. So I ended up going, studying at Leicester and did sort of like a maths physics -y degree which was fun I re really enjoyed it but never stopped playing all through university I was in a, a little indie band called Man and the Stars and we released a few bits and pieces and played at the Princess Charlotte a lot which is a venue that's now gone unfortunately but we supported loads of brilliant bands there and just had yeah it was really good and then finished my degree and moved to London and somehow blagged my way into a recording studio in Acton um, where we just yeah did loads of session work did loads of playing um, 
So were you working as an engineer? What was your role within the, the I was studio? just playing the bass. I was just playing the bass and then I was having rubbish jobs. Not rubbish jobs, a lot of rubbish jobs. A couple of good jobs. I worked for the Football Association for a bit. That was brilliant. I really enjoyed that job. Um, it was brilliant. Um, but yeah, just doing a lot of recording and, and just basically playing the bass and arranging songs for singers um, and putting them together and recording them. Um, and uh, where, the, where the studio was situated in West London in Acton, um, there was quite high deprivation. Um, and we would have people coming in, students coming in who had been permanently excluded from schools or um, who were just basically quite vulnerable in quite vulnerable positions. And this guy, Mick Francis, Michael Francis, who still runs, um, still runs the studio, would take these students in and we would sort of, I'd help out teaching them um, how to record, how to play, and generally just sort of trying to be a mentor to them. And from that, I then thought, oh, I, I do like this element of music. I like teaching. So I searched around for a course, but obviously I don't have a music degree, which makes things much trickier to be a teacher. Really? You, yeah, to, if, uh, you need a music degree to be a music teacher, you know? And, but I found a course at London Metropolitan um, which was a two-year course, and we did. So the first year was for, it was basically for, stu for trainee teachers who didn't have music degrees. So the first year was just a lot of theory about music and teaching music and an awful lot of playing. And it was all sort of mature students. I think I must have been about 24, 25 when I was doing this. Um, and it was all, we were all roughly the same age sort of thing. And then the second year was the PGCE. Um, and it was interesting because when the PGCE students joined the course who had done the music degree, I was quite shocked at the level of musicianship and thought, yeah, I definitely could have done a music degree. Like it was, the, the standard was, was much lower than I anticipated, which gave me quite a bit of confidence then. And then, and I essentially then got a job in London and then moved down to Bournemouth a couple of years later and was, have been teaching at the Bourne Academy ever since. That would have been 2011, I think I started at the Bourne Academy in Bournemouth. It'd be good to know a bit more about the Bourne Academy because from what you've told me in the past, the department was kind of yours to mould when you started and it's grown exponentially since. Yeah, it's, it's based in an area of Bournemouth called um, East Howe um, and uh, it's in the top 10 most deprived areas in the UK, which is always surprises people because you think, oh, lovely Bournemouth, but it's a typical sort of seaside town. Um, high deprivation um, away from that coast area, going inland a bit. Um, when I joined the Bourne Academy, it had been the Bourne Academy for a year. It had been Kings High previously to that. Um, the Bourne Academy it changed its name and it got sponsored by a private school called Camford. Um, which is based just outside of Bournemouth in, uh, in a place called Wimborne. Um, and it was run, it was taken over by a head teacher called Jackie Steele, who, um, who changed that school and turned it around for the few years that she was there. And when I was interviewed, she was very keen to have someone who was still a practicing musician. And at this point I was playing with Ian Prowse and I was playing with, uh, and still play with a, a band called Plum Hall uh, up in uh, Bradford as well. So I was still a practicing musician. Um, uh, so I got the job based on that, but there was no music going on in the school at all. So there was, I think I had four students in year 11 taking music and four in year 10, and there was no one. 
Um, and it was, we had a, a small amount of equipment. The head of drama just bought in a couple of electric guitars, a couple of acoustic guitars, a couple of amps. And, and straight away I realised I had quite a job because the students were not engaged at all. It took me, I'd say it took me about two years, three years to get things really going. Once I worked out what the niche was and what I needed to, well, how I needed to pitch it to the kids, because it was, they're in, they're, the, the, the students that we have come into the academy are brilliant. I think they're amazing. They're incredibly creative students um, and they need guidance and they need a focus and they need something to work towards. So the first few concerts that I put on, I was putting on one concert a year to begin with. And my idea was just whatever, we're, we're getting as many students as we can performing, let's just see what happens. Um, and the idea was that student, other students would see that and go, either I can do that or I could do better than that. And that's how I tried to hook them in. Um, I didn't have any peripatetic teachers either at the school at the time. So I managed to recruit uh, a guitar teacher and a drum teacher. John Wines and Bob Mace, two local musicians to play to teach guitar, bass, uke, drums. Then we got a singing teacher in, Nicky Ashford, and now I've got two piano teachers who also teach brass and strings. And we built it up from, from nothing really between the lot of us. Um, Were you the only music teacher actually based in the school full time? Yes, I was for the first five years. For the first five years I was on my own and I decided to go down the contemporary route with them because I wanted to get them engaged in music. So I got, we started learning ukulele, we started learning pop songs, we started doing singing, we started, I bought an electronic drum kit uh, because I can turn that down at a concert because students tend to play them really loudly so you've got a bit of volume control. Um, and it, yeah, it's sort of built from there really to the point where, where now uh, sort of the last four or five years, we've been well oversubscribed at music at GCSE level. Um, I've got, you know, I've got another two classes this year. I think I've got about 45, 50 students, no, about 55 students this year taking music in year nine. Um, and we run, I think, I tried to count once, I think it's about 14 or 15 concerts a year we do now. Um, and we get really good grades. You know, there's always room to improve, but it's it's taken a while to get there and I've got an, another music teacher now so uh, uh, so we're more stuff can be done and we run a, a very successful sit form course as well uh, with really high grades there as well but again it's all contemporary based so I've got two questions about that there so the first one is how important do you feel it is to be a practicing musician as a music teacher like how valuable is that as a teacher to actually be out and performing and still honing your own craft i, I think it's it's vital that you're still a performer that you're still performing it doesn't matter what you play because you can talk to the students about it so when i go on tour with ian prowse or anyone like that i will take photos as we, as the tour progresses and then i will show those photos to the students and go look this is what's happening on this tour this is what's happening at this venue and we talk through the um the technical aspect as well so i so they understand how it's set up they understand how a tour is is booked and how how it's promoted so we look at all the posters and all the promotion that goes into one of these tours and because i'm still a practicing musician i have all the sort of inside knowledge on how it's how it's actually done and how it's sort of worked through so you're not even just looking at it as a performer you're looking at the whole performance as you know lighting sound promotion all of these different things that's part of the course that you're teaching 
essentially it's not part of the course that we teach, the stuff I teach, it doesn't necessarily link to the course that they do at year 10 and year 11 or a sixth form, but I think it's incredibly important that they understand how, how it all works because my idea is for when a student leaves either in year 11 or they leave in year 13 from sixth form, the idea is that they can then, they can leave the school or the sixth form and they can build a career in music. They, they know how to write songs, they know how to record their own songs, they know how to book gigs, they know how to promote, they know how to play, they know how to work out songs. Um, by ear, they can arrange those songs. And I also um, teach a unit with the year, the, with the sixth formers on copyright, so they understand how PRS and PPL works, how publishing works. I mean, they absolutely despise the unit. It is, and it is complicated and quite dull, but it gives them really, really valuable knowledge that, so they know how to make money. But that's so important though, because I was talking in previous episodes to Greg Lawson about studying at a conservatoire level and how music industry isn't actually taught. You're taught how to play your instrument mm -hmm. and you're taught how to get better at your instrument, but it's, it's similar to that of actually passing your driving test. Yeah. All you're learning during your driving lessons is how to operate the car and how to pass your driving test. You're not learning how to drive. Yeah. And the fact that you're actually teaching that at a, a really influential level where, you know, young people are going off and thinking, do I want this as a career? They've got the full package of information then, don't they? Yeah. And they can also, they can also, they don't have to do it as a full-time career. They can do, they can do it part-time. And I think that's the important thing. I think there's, you, you don't have to be a brilliant musician to have a career in music, to make money in music. You don't have to be that good. You know, um, I'm, I'm intrigued not, as to what you mean by that. I'm not an outstanding musician. I know what sounds right. I know what works with music and I know how to arrange songs, but I'm not a brilliant musician, but I know what people want to hear and I know how to arrange music. And I understand that aspect of it. So I think you don't have to be amazing. Noel Gallagher is a prime example of that. The whole of Oasis. I mean, none of them are, are like none of them are by any stretch um, virtuosos on their instruments. But define a brilliant musician, because for me, I would challenge that as um, okay. You might not be brilliant at one particular element, so your instrument, for example. But a musician is so much more than the instrument. So when I say that, I mean technically, te technically good at the instrument. So, you know, Noel Gallagher's a brilliant songwriter. He's not technically amazing at the guitar. He's not like, oh, I mean, I can't think of any amazing guitarists on the top of my head. He's not like Steve Vai. I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm not a fan of Steve Vai, but he's an amazing guitarist. You know, he, you can't take it away from the fact that he's brilliant at his craft, but Noel Gallagher is not the same level as technically on the guitar. Um, but what he knows is what people want to hear. Or he did in the 90s. And he can write a really good, he, well, he can write a really good pop song. He can write a brilliant pop song that, that actually speaks to people. And that's the important thing. You know, who cares if they're all in C major? You know, and Do you know, all... that's really interesting. I was watching the, um, the Liam Gallagher documentary recently. It's just out on Netflix just now. And how he only really identified that he was a songwriter after Oasis split up. And he didn't think for ages that he could write anything. He just saw himself functionally as the singer yeah. that would turn up in the front man. Mm. But then he actually realized that he had an awful lot more to offer. Yeah. So 
Songbird's you know, actually a really decent song. Um, I can't remember which album it's off of. I think it's Heathen Chemistry. It's a really good song, and it is two chords, and it is a song that is really accessible to kids as well, because it is literally just G, E minor, the whole way through, and they can play along to it. So that's a song that, you know, I can get weaker students, perhaps, to play, because they can access songs like that. They can access, students can access Oasis songs really easily. And so make... there's, there's, like, so much there that you can teach as well, because obviously with G major and E minor being the relative minor, there's so many other kind of theoretical-based things that you could teach there, which would bring me to my next question. You were talking about the fact that you started contemporary music at the school. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that was the right decision for your school because there's been an awful lot of conversation throughout the podcasts already about the hierarchy of music and how classical music is seen as you know the top tier or has been viewed as the top tier in the past do you think it was the right decision for your school to do contemporary music because of that accessibility yeah i think it's i mean it has worked it has worked so well and the students are so passionate about music and they they find out stuff themselves as well they come to me with different songs or different ideas about what they want to do and they are so passionate about music and they are leaving with the with the skills to have a career in music now i fully accept that um currently at the academy we i the classical side is not covered very well which i know we will obviously we'll definitely speak more about that but later but there's but you don't see that as a failing though i don't think you should because to have taken your music department from what four kids studying up to what 55 alone in year nine speaks volumes about the success of music and music as a, a language in general and I think, I think a social elitism, transformation tool i think there's an elitism in music education where a lot of people in music education will look at saying oh they just do contemporary music that's not proper music why does the school not have an orchestra why does it not have this that and the other and there is a lot of elitism i think across the country in the fact that if it's not classical music at schools then it doesn't really count and yet tell me about the performances like the complete diary of performances that your school has now within a year or even within a term so we do i do three recitals a year well three sets of recitals a year the autumn recital, which is three or four nights, um, and the recite there's a spring one as well, which is four nights, and there's a summer one, which is one or two nights, depending on whether I make a mistake with the booking and end up having to have two nights because I've got too many acts. Um, but the idea behind that is that everyone in year nine, ten, and eleven are all put into bands and they will all play at least one song, so at least one song. Most of them will do more. They will also... Which is giving them that performance experience regardless of the genre of music that they're playing. And, and, they, and they will arrange those songs themselves. And I will give guidance to the year nines uh, a lot more to the, than the year tens or elevens. I sort of try and leave the year elevens alone, really, to try and let them develop what they want to do. Um, but we do three nights of that, but they also, students will also do their singing solos, stuff that they've been learning in their peri lessons, the peripatetic lessons. So there'll be a lot of solos. And also, the wonderful thing is that they will just, the older kids sort of in year 10, 11 say, oh, I'm doing a duet with this person. And it's got to the stage now that with the majority of them, I'll be like, great. And I won't even check it because they have the skills 
and the knowledge and I'll just be like, yeah, I'm sure that'd be fine. And maybe one of the peripatetic staff will pick it up and have a quick listen. But I trust the students enough now with the skills that they've got when they get to that stage where they will just, I would just go, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll stick it in. Which so, is such a massive skill set to have. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, holistic outcomes with music, that would tick off so many bo boxes about grit, resilience, independent working, independent thinking. Yeah, I think I think the thing is as well, I mean, I always, with any recital you have to, or any concert you have to sort of frame it for the audience. I'm very open to the audience at the start saying, these performances are not going to be the best things that you'll ever see. This is about those students getting on stage and they will perform and there'll be 100, 120 people watching every night at these recitals. They are really well attended by the parents and carers and staff and so you've actually got a community yeah. coming in to the school as a result as well because there's a lot of generations um kind of the perhaps even the generation before us or our generation of parents who didn't have a positive experience at school who will see actually <laughs> attending the building for any reason as a real a real intimidating factor yeah. so finding a way to bring people in is yeah. such a powerful thing to have it's, it's it's also really useful for me as a teacher because when they're leaving you can have a chat with them and then you get to know them over the years and then so by the time they get to year 11 you can have a really frank conversation with that parent about your 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 child is not doing this this is not they're not doing that and you can actually have a really frank conversation because they know you and they know all the concerts that they've done you can be you can be really blunt with them and be honest with them and not sort of or how am I going to word it to this parent? Will they get upset that their child's not doing as well? That you can be very open with them, which again, you have to have, you have to build a relationship with those, with the parents uh, at any school. And, and that's so important. That's missing an awful lot, I think, from various different styles of music teaching where that opportunity isn't possible. Mm. So to have actually built something into your department where that is a possibility is really inspiring. Yeah. So. That, that, that's kind of how the recitals work. It's, so that's just one strand of the performances. What else actually happens within strand. the school? Um, we also do a Christmas cabaret, which is a mixture of music, dance and drama, which is always great um, and a bit of fun. And again, my, depart I, I my department never complain, but I swear they must hate me because I always book the um, Christmas cabaret as we call it, on the night before we break up for the Christmas holidays because, and there is a reason behind that, the kids are so excited about breaking up for Christmas. They're so excited about performing. It has a wonderful, it has a brilliant atmosphere. And the school would do a half day on the last day of term. So in my head, it's like just four hours we've got to get through of being exhausted. It's totally fine. Um, so we do that. We do that. Um, they've never complained before. Not to my face, anyway. Um, I'm sure they must have a WhatsApp group where they go, he's done it again, because um, I've booked it in again for Christmas, the day before we break up. Um, then February, March time, we we'll do another set of recitals. And we, we get more students involved with those ones because those year sevens and year eights will have done more work. So I'll get, they'll be more involved. And we'll also we'll be looking at the option groups and trying to get as many in as we can. Then I've got the exam concerts for year 11 and year 13, around the same time. And they have a night each um, because they deserve to have a night each. And, it sh and it's a really lovely way to sort of bookend all the performances they've done. Uh, then we have a big summer concert. 
um, which is called the Summer Music Cafe, where we every student in the department will perform at least one song again, only this time it has to be really high quality. And we will dress the stage in our main performance area properly. So this year, I don't really know what our theme was this year. It was just sort of like, we had a lot of bright colours. We had umbrellas from the ceiling with tassels on as if they were jellyfish. And I just said, normally in a concert, they all wear black. But for this one, I was like, oh, just wear as bright coloured clothes as you possibly can. And I got... Um, uh, our, one of our art teachers, an art technician, was doing we're doing glitter makeup for the students, and we had confetti cannons and a balloon drop, and they all yeah, I mean it was brilliant, and the performances were really, really, really high quality, and that's supposed to be sort of that's a showcase for the music department. Um, Wasn't there a surprise at the end of that concert that you told me about? Yeah, so I have a group of Year Thirteens who. I've done a lot of work with over the past seven years. They were my year 11s when the pandemic hit and we did a lot, awful lot of online concerts and stuff together. And, um, which were really confusingly, but we managed to stream them live on, on the Performing Arts Facebook page, um, which is really quite challenging technology wise, but we managed to do it. We did, I think maybe eight of them um, over the lockdown periods. Um, and they um, know that I'm a big fan of a certain artist as in, I have an unhealthy obsession with this artist. I love him. He's brilliant. Um, and they secretly um, rehearsed a, a song by by him and performed it. Who was it? Tom Petty. <laughs> um, so I have, uh, yeah, I think he's one of the greatest songwriters ever lived. Um, there's a couple cut out in my classroom of him that the students bought me once. Uh, so they performed one of his songs. And it was, I've got to say, probably the highlight of my entire teaching career. Uh, we have a bit of a surprise song for Mr. Mastercola.
yeah, they somehow managed to keep it a secret from me, even though I knew that I felt that some, someone had been in my department one evening because stuff wasn't where I'd left it. So I was confused and thought perhaps I was losing my mind slightly and asked my instrumental staff if they'd seen anything and they all swore blind that they didn't. But they all knew about it. So Amazing. Yeah, it was it was lovely. I've got the video of it. It's really yeah, it's wonderful. Amazing. So, I mean, that sounds like an incredible amount of provision to put on for just one school. How do you manage all of that? Because as one person within a department, that's actually quite an awful lot to take on and to think about on top of actually teaching the rest of the school. How would you say you manage that? Um, poorly. I... I'm very lucky. I had a music teacher called Russell Schedule who worked with me for, I think it was four, four or five years. Um, again, probably one of the best guitarists I've ever worked with, one of the best musicians I've ever worked with. Um, and a, a, a brilliant music teacher and we would set up all the concerts and he totally got what we were trying to do um, or what I was trying to do in music and he was brilliant. I have a, another music teacher now called Amy, Amy Newsom Stone, who again, is an, a contemporary musician who's absolutely brilliant and, like, again, totally gets the department. Unfortunately, running a department like that, which is heavy on concerts, means it's incredibly... It takes up a huge amount of time. It takes up a huge amount of time. And but you're always striving for things to be better each time by the sounds of things, am I right in saying? Yeah, you can't... Things have always got to improve. So, although... For instance, this summer concert, summer music cafe we had this year was the best we'd ever done. Next year, it needs to be better. So I need to think. So I've had the summer off, some holidays off, and now I need to think about how to make that better. Because um, you've got to strive to improve, and, and it's all about giving students quality opportunities, professional standard opportunities, because if they see a properly rigged stage with proper lights and everything there, they raise their game to the performance. It's so much different than, you know, I see videos, um, and this isn't poo-pooing other schools at all, but you see videos of, of some performances, you know, just done in the, the Hub Canteen, and there's nothing wrong with those performances, but, and, and I've done plenty of those performances, you know, where I've you just gone, right, we set up a little PA system, right, you two, you're gonna do a little set of acoustic numbers over lunchtime, there's nothing wrong with that, but for, they need to, the students need to know they can raise their game to a different level. And if you, as a teacher, and as a, a sort of a leader of performing arts in the school, if you can put on professional standard backdrop and backline for them with a professional sound and everything like that, then they will raise their game, and it it's, it, it makes them a better musician because they know. Oh my gosh. I've got to make sure I get this right. So they will practice more. If they don't have concerts, they won't practice. They just don't. They're, they're, they're kids. There's so many other things now that they can that they can take their time away. So it's about giving them really good opportunities. Um, I mean, I think that sounds quite similar to the Sistema mantra and certainly yeah. something that we always used to talk about in Harmony um, in Liverpool as well. It's where social transformation and musical excellence one cannot be changed without the other yeah so it's a constant constant you know if, if one drops the other drops so you've got yeah. to kind of keep both at that level 
I think it's important to note as well, I'm not expecting every single kid who takes music or, or studies music at any, any, any degree through the school to all want to be musicians or do stuff when they leave. It is all about, even if they just have like wonderful memories. It's the experiential learning that comes with that yeah. kind of thing, isn't it? It's not about making kind of mini-me's or turning everybody into a, a future professional musician, but you yeah. want them to have the most real and uh, kind of authentic experience yeah. of being a musician yeah. and being a musician isn't just about becoming a professional musician like you say you can go off and do it as a hobby yeah and it still is valuable yeah and you can still make a bit of money playing the playing pubs and working man's club you can still make money that way if you wanted to yeah. um I, I think that's really important as well i think you know it's lovely when i see sort of if when I'm out gigging around Bournemouth or Dorset and I see ex-students who are performing, I sometimes get some of them to support one of, one of the bands that I play with and it's, it's great to have seen the progress that they've made over the years. And they, a lot of them do keep in contact and just let me know what they're up to. I know one chap's released a prog rock album, uh, I think it was last year. It's I mean, that speaks volumes about you as a teacher, which doesn't remotely surprise me that you've not only been nominated for Teacher of the Year twice, you've actually won it as well. So... I'm going to backtrack slightly to where we were at the start of the podcast where you hated me introducing you with that particular uh, accolade. Is yeah. there any particular reason for that, Dave? Um, I play the bass guitar as my main instrument for a reason. Most people don't listen to the bass guitar. Now, musicians do. Musicians do. Because I can see you pulling a face. But, so, musicians do listen to the bass. But... On the whole, most people won't listen to the bass guitar. The general public don't listen to the bass. They to anybody listening to this, if you are an avid bass guitar listener, please get in touch so that I can prove this wrong. However, do continue, Dave. They know The general public notice if the bass isn't there, but they won't notice it when it is there. And you can stand at the back and you have, can have all the fun in the world. And then at the end of the gig, you can unplug your bass, pack up and disappear. I love it. That is exactly why I love playing the bass guitar, because I get to do all the fun bits of music where I get to entertain people. I get to play. I get to play songs I enjoy. I get to hang out with my mates. I have a really good time. And then I don't have to deal with anyone trying to talk to me at the end of the gig because no one wants to talk to the bass player. I, I vividly remember playing a gig with Ian Prowse many years ago at the O2 in Liverpool. And I think it was a smaller room, so there would have been maybe five, six hundred people there. We'd finished playing, and myself and the drummer nipped to the toilets to have a quick wee. And we were there, and there was a chap there also at the Urinals, and he said, oh, it's a good gig. And I was like, oh, yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah, really enjoyed it. So he'd seen him many times before. So he'd watched a two-hour set with me and the drummer and didn't recognise us. And we laughed about it afterwards because that's... That's pretty much perfect for me. So going back to the award stuff, anything that promotes me, and I know we've had discussions in the past about this, anything that promotes me or anything like that makes me want to hide. Because that's not why I play music. I don't play music to be the front man, to be all, all important, look at me. I don't play music. I play music to entertain so that people can go out, have a few beers, forget about everything that's going on in their life for a couple of hours and then go home and think, oh, that was fun, wasn't it? And then they go back to their daily problems. 
and that, that's the way I, I see music, whether it's covers, whether it's your own music, whether it's somebody else's music and you're, and you're sort of part of a backing band. I want people, that's what I enjoy about performing personally. So when it comes to anything promoting, I try desperately to keep my name out of it to do with the school. It doesn't work very often, but I try and keep my name out of it. Um, it was obviously lovely to be recognized for that and it was a lovely evening. It was really, like, I really enjoyed it and it was nice that they were recognising teachers uh, across Dorset um, for the hard work they do because it is a really tough job. But... Being the centre of attention is just not your thing. Horrible. Um, <laughs> I have very... Musicianship-wise, I have, I have very low self-esteem about my own ability. Um, I've surrounded myself with brilliant musicians for years. But and you don't consider yourself to be in that same category? Not not in the slightest. And there's there's sort of, I would say, four people who I've played with, sort of guitarists who I've played with and a drummer who I've played with, who, who have built me, made me get much better as a musician because I surrounded myself by amazing musicians it made me get better quicker but I'm still never going to be on the same level as as they will as they are and that doesn't particularly bother me I, I I'm now at a stage in my career where I'm very happy with how I play there's I'm happy with what I can do and I know what I can do I still want to improve as a musician but I'm not going to be practicing four five six hours a night I don't simply have the time with my job to have to to, 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 to be able to do that. No, uh, but I think I don't think you're alone in that as a musician, because, I mean, for me as a professional violinist, the guilt over practicing mm. or not practicing, I should say, is always there. But sometimes I actually feel better for having not practiced because I'm much more relaxed going into a situation. Um, and <laughs> then there's the adrenaline and the cortisol there that makes me sharper with focus when it comes to sight reading a piece of music or learning something for the first time, is that something that you experience? So if I'm doing a tour, I will be sent the music or the songs a while before. And then I have quite a bad habit of not even listening to them properly until about three or four days before the um, only rehearsal that we'd have. And then I will scramble to write everything down and learn it. Um, simply because I, because I just don't have a huge amount of time to rehearse and to practice, which is really frustrating. But I, I don't particularly like that type of adrenaline on stage. I like to be able to go on stage and be extremely relaxed. Um, okay. just, and, and just not, not even have to think. You know, I know I've played covers gigs before where I've been standing there and I'm genuinely, I'm so relaxed and just, I'm planning lessons in my head. Like I remember, and it sounds so tragic, but everyone's having a wonderful time. Everyone's dancing, the band having a great time. I think, we, and I remember vividly we were playing Hurley Through the Grapevine. And I've, I've played that song for so many years. It's all, all, autopilot, all, autopilot. And I remember planning lessons and then coming off stage and quickly writing down my ideas. Amazing. Bit, so you're basically like, meditating when you're on stage. Yeah, essentially, yeah. I find it, I find it really, yeah, I don't like that adrenaline of, oh my God. If there's a song on the set list and you see it coming up, you think, oh God, I've got to get through this one. I remember we did Born to Run once. Um, 
and it's a you think oh it's pretty straightforward so there's so many different sections to it so i remember tabbing it out or writing it out it was an a3 sheet of paper and i was like oh god what am i going to do with this how am i going to sneak this on stage was that with prosy i feel like i remember well, the a3 it was. sheet it was, <laughs> it was like wallpaper on the stage it was ridiculous and and it was written so small i was like oh i'm not there to read this um, and it was, I think it was the final number. And so the entire gig, I'm nice and relaxed to be at the back of my head and thinking, oh God, we still got to play Born to Run. Um, it's like seven minutes long. And knowing how much of a fan of Bruce Springsteen Ian is, I thought, if I screw this up, he is going to go absolutely ballistic at me afterwards. Um, so yeah. I mean, I there's no denying that it was, you know, he makes the joke at all at all times, you know, Rosie was either going to be called Rosalita or Born to Run. Yeah, <laughs> he, he loves that song. I thought, oh gosh, how am I going to manage this? But um, yeah, that type of adrenaline I don't enjoy. And it being anywhere, you know, he introduces me on stage and every time I, you know, a little bit of me curls up and hides away. I do notice that when... when a lot of people are kind of credited as being on stage. Not many people like being that kind of centre of attention. Ensemble playing isn't about just the one person, right. unless it is in a band where someone is a front man mm. and you're the musicians behind them. Mm. Um, and to actually be recognised, like you say, is lovely. But all of a sudden, when everyone's looking at you, you just want the ground to swallow you up. Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely, I can't stand it. Like being anonymous is wonderful. I, I, like, I like it. I like being anonymous on stage. That's why, you know, I'm not, I don't get my kicks out of playing music for all the attention. I get my kicks out of playing music for entertaining. And because you enjoy the music and, that you're yeah, playing I, too. I enjoy the music. And I'm at a stage now where I'm not going to play with any band if I don't enjoy the music. You know, when I was younger, I'd play whatever, whatever, whatever anyone wanted me to play. But that's so interesting because I think so many musicians have to go through that kind of baptism of fire with playing the stuff that they don't enjoy. Mm. And then the stuff that they do enjoy and that's when it becomes more of a job yeah to kind of have to get through those bits doesn't it yeah i mean i, I played in a jazz band for a number of years and i don't get any particular pleasure out of playing jazz but we played some nice places and it improved me as a musician no end playing again surrounded surrounding myself with outstanding musicians they were all i think at middlesex uni studying jazz and again i was the guitarist was actually this chap daryl kelly again um, and it was um it it improved me as a musician, but I'm so I'm so glad that I did it. But I I wasn't getting any particular joy out of playing it. Uh, that felt like a job to me, and we were getting paid, but I, I, it felt like a job. So, with that in mind, thinking about your whole career as a musician, what would you say your highest and your lowest points have been? I think there was I had a band in my early twenties um, who who I think. We were three piece, and again, it was this chap Dowell again, uh, and his brother, um, and we were a little three piece pop group called the Struts, and we had, I think it's genuinely the the, the only band I've ever been in where I've been a, like a proper working member writing the songs, arranging the three of us together, where I genuinely thought, gosh, we've got we've got some really good songs here actually. We, we sound good, our songs are really strong, we have a decent following, um, we did some good, we did some really good gigs, we did some, some good, um, we had, did some, you know, promotional um, uh, gigs as well, promo gigs, and 
we had a, a really solid EP and a really good image and it just sort of fizzled out. And I remember it fizzling out because I used to be, I used to be the one who booked a lot of the gigs and Daryl started going off at a slight tangent. He started doing a lot of percussive stuff with his guitar and he just wanted to go in a different direction, um, which is totally fair enough. Like, he, he just, I don't think he was get. I don't think he was into it as much as he, as he was. I think he, musically, he moved past that. And it just sort of fizzled out while I was doing, I think I was doing a PGCE and it was, I, I think that was a really low point for me because I thought, God, that's a, I think that's a real missed opportunity where we could have done something, might have only lasted a couple of years, probably would have. But I thought, I always thought that was a real missed opportunity where I could have, we could have done something because we were, we were really good actually. Um, and then high point, playing with Ian is, is brilliant. And it could be any one of those gigs, really high points. I'm just trying to think of any particular gig in particular. I think it's interesting playing with, with Ian Prowse because we play in front of a lot of people. We play, we do very good tours. The songs are really strong. Um, the As a band, we've kind of developed as well because it's been yeah. the same people largely. Yeah. It's been the same core group, hasn't it, for a, a number of years, at least 10 years. Um, there could be any any one of those gigs that I played with, with working working with that band. I think is probably a high point. Like I, I think musically we are very good, and considering are... how geographically spread this yeah. band is, yes, it's, it's been... quite phenomenal that we actually get together and play. Yes, sometimes without rehearsing, and come off stage, and it's been as good as it is. Which is why I was asking the question before about that kind of adrenaline because yeah it's great to feel relaxed going on stage but how we manage to pull off stuff at times when you know we've got the bass guitarist coming from Bournemouth Ian coming from Liverpool the lead guitarist Johnny coming from Bristol yeah. I'm coming from Scotland like yeah. it's nuts it is we've got no right sometimes to be able to get away with it. it's fun, oh. funny though isn't it which is something we should yeah, all have like... on a t-shirt it should just yeah. say it on the back like on the front ian prowse in amsterdam and on the back we had no right to do that yeah. <laughs> i've said to him before we won't get away with it forever one day it's going to go horribly wrong we're all going to have an absolute mayor on stage there's no well, way we can get away with it we're 14 years in and for you dave anyway yeah. 10 years in for me and it's not happened yet so i think yeah. i think no nah. optimism at all times <laughs> <laughs> Um, so one thing I wanted to kind of touch on was how important you feel music education is as a whole, because quite often music is one of the first things where cuts are experienced in terms of funding, in terms of timetabling, all this kind of thing. What benefit do you think, given how vast your music department is at the Bourne Academy, how important do you think music education is as a whole? For a lot of those students who go to my school, who take music it is the only reason they come in it's the subject that they look forward to because it is a practical based subject it is a fun subject you know i i'm certainly not there to be their friend i am quite brutal with them um you know i expect i have extremely high standards that they need to keep to but they they know where the line is and the reason a lot of them come in is for music. 
it, I think without music, you know, what did everyone turn to during the pandemic? You know, when everyone was in lockdown, they turned to music, they turned to film, you know, they turned to computer games, stuff like that. You know, what the fact that the government are taking away or stopping funding for an awful lot of these performing arts degrees you know that is as a as an industry we're the second biggest industry in the country generating money billions and billions of pounds and just to say oh we're going to take rid of get rid of any uh, degrees that don't increase your earnings which is i know something one of the tory candidates are saying is a degree or in, in anything isn't worthless it you have to work for it. It shows a certain level of dedication at the least. There's no such thing as a worthless degree. You know, I don't use my degree at all. But having gone through those four years of studying it, I know that I can achieve that and I know that I had to work really hard and it shows resilience and, you know, self-motivation to be able to do that. I think music education, without music, an awful lot of these students are going to be completely lost. But music is something that enhances everything. So yeah. one of the first things that a child will hear, even in utero, is their parents singing or music on the outside, as well as speech. One of the first things that you get when you turn the TV on is music, whether it's enhancing a drama or an advert or anything like that. It's everywhere. And people don't realise, actually, the background story that goes into creating a lot of that music and a lot of that resource as well. And the number of people that it involves, like we say, it's not just the musicians that are performing to kind of go back to what you were saying before about how you teach music and you teach the whole picture. Like there's so many different skill sets within actually producing a piece of music or a performance or whatever else. And that I think is sometimes forgotten about. Yeah. within our industry and certainly to people that don't understand music as a career or a choice. I mean, I can remember being told by my maths teacher over and over again, oh, music, you'll never make a career in that. And I actually remember when I bought my house. Uh, in fact, I think it was earlier than when I bought my house. I think it was when I bought my first car outright. And I remember thinking, well, I did that with music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm still earning a living through being a violinist. Um, maths I haven't done since I was doing standard grade which in Scotland is the equivalent or was the equivalent to GCSE mm. so you you mean you even hear teachers not in our school but you hear teachers saying oh don't, you don't need to take music oh you're not going to be able to make any money in music there's music everywhere mm -hmm. and even if you don't make money in music culturally it is so important that you can appreciate music I don't like every style of music I don't like heavy metal music but I can appreciate the fact that to be a heavy metal musician and to be a good heavy metal musician you have to be really good because rhythmically it is complicated and hard and you've got to be have your timing absolutely nailed on I can appreciate all types of music it doesn't mean I have to like it we it's... were discussing with Lee um at one point that music is actually such a universal language as well it doesn't matter where you're from music will speak to you in its very own personal way mm. But I, th I think it's not even just music, it's performing arts in general. We're doing a school show this year at Christmas as well. And, you know, we'll have up to 120 students performing in that. And I'll have a little band of musicians playing all the music. And you, it's not just about the performing. You, you watch all these students develop friendships across year groups. 
students in year seven will look up to those year 13, those year 12 sixth form students and say, oh, I want to do that. It inspires them to do stuff. It's not just about the performing, it's about the whole journey. And it sounds so cheesy and I hate saying it, but it's about the whole journey of of going through the performing arts, do music, dance, drama, you know, that it, it's so important for for all students, all children and adults to have access to that. And if if the general public and the government are saying, oh, or the government are saying, you know, we don't we don't value the arts, then that will filter down to the parents and to the students who will say, oh well, no, don't do music. You're not going to go anywhere with music. That's not going to help you be a doctor. Well, we know that fundamentally isn't true, because to be a doctor, to get into do medicine, they don't want you just to be academically the best. They want you to be a well-rounded individual. Mm -hmm. And actually, in ter if we're speaking about mental health, which is what an awful lot of this podcast is about, the benefits that music, bring, mm. um, music brings to people's mental health are just uh, infinite. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what I, personally, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had my music teacher at school and at college. I have no idea how I would have managed to get through education. I think I just, I would have been utterly aimless. I probably would have never left my hometown. I probably wouldn't have done anything. I mean, I basically owe music and, and to uh, Paul Shepard and Martin Reed, I like, basically owe my entire career to those two because I have, I don't know what I would have done without them. I mean, I would have, you know, just done nothing. But you've taken an awful lot of that forward with your own students as well, because a lot of them, like you say, get back in touch with you to let you know how they're getting on as a result of the work you've done with them. Oh, yeah. You just saying that makes me want to curl up and hide again. <laughs> I know. There's always part of me that's going to challenge the imposter syndrome in you because actually, you know, the accolades are there and the work is there. Sometimes it's just that somebody else needs to tell you. <laughs> Yeah. So <laughs> I love that you're just like, Ugh. yeah, I'm really defensive now. <laughs> yeah, I can see it. Your entire your entire being has just seized up. So to finish, um, what I've been asking everybody is if you were speaking to your younger self. So looking back to maybe school leaver age and you wanted to offer a piece of advice to yourself going into the music industry. Knowing what you know now, what would that be? Get out there and play as much as you can. Play as many different styles of music. Just gig as co as constantly as you can. It's the, the the one way where you would improve with your confidence, with your musicianship, and also just being embedding yourself into the the community and the local sort of music scene. Um, or and if you if your that area doesn't have a music scene, then create it. You know, it is totally possible for a group of like-minded individuals to create a music scene in an area where there is very little music scene. Um, there was a, a brilliant music scene in Bournemouth for, for lots of different styles of music. And it is extremely supportive music um, community and people do show up to each other's gigs to support. Um, you know, you've got all the usual backstabbing, everything like that, but that happens in any type of thing. How yeah. do you deal with the criticism? that comes your way within music it was you know whether it's teaching or performing <laughs> i take it extremely personally um and will do whatever i can to try and sort out if there's a criticism about a, a song that we play or anything like that or my playing then i will try and sort it I, I i think that's just something that 
I don't think I'll ever be able to overcome. So if someone criticises my playing or one of my bands, I will take it extremely personally. But I think that's a good thing because, you know, you could say, oh, well, I don't care. Well, if you don't care, you're not caring about what your audience think. You should care what your audience think, I, I believe. And if they think one of your songs is rubbish, well, why do they think it's rubbish? Ultimately, they're the ones who are consuming your music. I want them to enjoy themselves when they're listening to us. So, but yeah. Brilliant. Nice one. Well, thanks so much, Dave. It's been lovely chatting to you about everything. No worries. It was a, a pleasure as always. I'm looking forward to kicking again. It's a bad, let's be safe.